Well, it's good to see you all here today. Today we're going to talk about uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I think you will find it interesting. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to convince you of that. Well, once the coffee kicks in, you'll find him interesting. All right. Good. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that we are in your house that uh, we have the opportunity to worship you and praise you and even learn more about you through other people. And Lord, we pray for uh, your blessing over this time we have. Pray that uh, you would give us knowledge and wisdom uh, through the fear of you. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Well, how many of you, uh, I mean, you've heard of Thomas Aquinas? Anyone, ever, everyone heard of Thomas Aquinas? How many have not heard of Thomas Aquinas? All right, thank you for your honesty. All right. So Thomas Aquinas, uh, he was a guy, uh, 13th century guy. Um, he was part of the, one of the thinkers of the med medieval times. Um, and I want to give you some context uh, that might give you an idea of what was going on uh, when he was around. Uh, Aristotle was, was uh, his works were known at that time, but Aristotle's works, uh, not all of them were known. So they, they were known about uh, uh, his, uh, his works in logic were known. So people were very clear about the Aristotelian way of thinking, and, uh, but his ethics and metaphysics and all the technical stuff wasn't, wasn't around yet. Well, as the 13th century came around, uh, they had found some of his stuff, and now Aristotle was back in the, uh, the main uh, view of everybody. Uh, the Muslim influence was starting to really take place. Uh, and the Muslims' view of Aristotle was starting to uh, be very prevalent. You had a lot of Muslim scholars writing about this, writing about uh, Aristotle. At this point, Islam was, uh, was in the intellectual world, if I can put it that way. It was, uh, it was slowly building to violence but not quite there yet. Uh, I know last week uh, Chuck had given um, a Sunday school on uh, that guy whose name <laughs> escapes me at this moment. But uh, what was it? I hear everyone say, uh, I hear sounds. I don't hear... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Volet. My Volet. Okay. <laughs> oh, the French. All right. Well. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we there's a lot of bad press that the um, that those wars brought about. Um, I think a lot of people thought that 
Islam just had a different point of view and the Christians had another point of view and they shouldn't have fought over it. But uh, I will tell you, Islam really is. And I, and I think I could, it's kind of relevant now with 9-11 and everything uh, recently, uh, being the 20th anniversary of 9-11 being talked about. Uh, it's important to understand as you study, if you were to study Islam, uh, it was one of the topics I studied in my, in my uh, doctoral work. It really is a satanic uh, religion. I mean, down to its very roots. Uh, Muhammad, um, when you study how it is that he came about his views, when you study uh, what kind of a man he was, a rapist of children. He was really a, I mean, the, the whole religion is uh, just completely satanic. It's not that uh, Allah is just another name for God. It is not that they are worshiping just nothing. Um, I really think there is something there. Um, I don't think people, when they, when they have a false religion, that they are worshiping nothing. Um, I think demons are a part of the worship uh, and so you know this influence you know that starts so intellectually uh, becomes very violent um, so this is the context that Thomas Aquinas is born into he was born in 1225 uh, in northern Italy, uh, this was uh, in, a, in a town between Naples and Rome, and that becomes relevant later on. He was born of a noble family. Now, this is important uh, when we're talking about medieval times. Uh, to be noble, to be born in a noble family brought about a lot of responsibility. Uh, it meant that when when you reach a certain age, you will take on the responsibility of land and the people that uh, take care of the land um, is part of your responsibility to make sure that these people are taken care of and that they take care of the land the right way. It really is, uh, it was like a, uh, a family business uh, is how we could, I guess, view it today as Americans <laughs> looking back at something we can't possibly uh, relate to. In 1239, and, and so we're taking big leaps because uh, Aquinas' life, there's not a, there's not a ton uh, known about his life. Um, people weren't taking copious notes on each other back then. It was, uh, you know things because of certain records that are found. Um, so in 1239, uh, he attended the University of Naples. Um, he was taught there the Islamic interpretation of Aristotle. Okay, so the Islamic interpretation of Aristotle was very big there. There wasn't this, there wasn't a big presence of a Christian understanding of Aristotle. Now you have to understand that Aristotle was a philosopher that, uh, you're probably wondering why everyone's talking about Aristotle. Uh, he was a philosopher that was very um, influential obviously, and to look back on how it is that people think and how they view the world was, uh, was important 
and there wasn't a ton of Christian commentaries on the Bible and Christian books on how to live your life or how to think. And so Aristotle kind of became the uh, standard of how we know our psychology, how we know our epistemology, how we come to uh, think about things and understand our thoughts. Um, and even how we understand the world, sociology. So Aristotle was, this, uh, was a wealth of information as to where do we even start to understand ourselves, how do we understand how we think, how we understand the social world around us. And the people that were doing all the work on Aristotle at that time were the Muslims. And so at the University of Naples, that's what he was learning, this Islamic interpretation of Aristotle. Now this will be important because, as uh, maybe some of you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas becomes the standard of the Christian interpretation of Aristotle later on. So while he was at the University of Naples, he believed he had a call into uh, ministry. Now back then, if you were called into ministry, you joined, uh, you, you became a monk. And there were different orders of monks. And the order that he uh, decided to join was the Dominican order. And his family was really upset about this because uh, going into a monastery, becoming a monk, joining an order is what poor people did. Not nobles, all right? Now, there were, there were uh, you know, higher orders, uh, you know, and the Dominicans were a pretty high order. I mean, they were the, they were the leaders in uh, thought, and uh, if I can put it this way, they were the scholars. But, um, but it's not what nobles did. So his family was so upset about this that they uh, had him arrested and put in prison to stop him from becoming a monk. Uh, they thought if he spent some time in, in prison that he would uh, sober up, realize his responsibilities to be a nobleman, and, uh, and, and get on board. Well, that didn't happen. He had some influence with some friends and was able to get out of prison. It was unclear whether this was an escape or if this was some uh, paperwork that was pushed around to get him out. Uh, but he got out, and he, what was that? I said the parents did not relent. No, the, the parents were dead serious about him uh, getting into the, you know, and you got to understand, it's not just that, you know, they owned, you know, a bunch of property and they wanted him to uh, take control of it. This was really a part of who you were going to be, who you were representing and there was lots of responsibility behind it. Uh, some, I know that, you know, we as Americans, we look, at, we look at rich people and we think, oh, they're rich, so everything's just taken care of for them. And, you know, it must be really nice just to have free money given to you all the time because that's kind of how Americans think of rich people, that they just were handed a briefcase of money and this is how their life went. Uh, not everyone's like, like Trump who was given a a meager million dollars to get his business going. Uh, but the, uh, 
But back then, uh, being a noble, being in a noble family was a. There's people depending on you. It wasn't just a bunch of land you owned. There was people on there that were that depended on you to run this and to make sure everything was was going to be okay. And so they wanted him to to meet his responsibilities, just to defend the family for a second. You know. Uh, but he really wanted to be in the in the uh, in the Dominican order. And so uh, he, he made that happen. Um, he received his degrees. Back then, degrees were different than they are now. I mean, now we have like bachelor's degree, then a master's degree, then a PhD. The PhD is kind of something uh, that was invented later. Uh, but he, he had the highest degrees you can get at that time. And he ended up uh, between 1252 and 1256. He ended up teaching uh, at the University of Paris. Now, this is a big deal because the University of Paris becomes like the central point where everyone gets uh, uh, educated who's anybody. Uh, Calvin ended up at the University of Paris. So uh, this is like the place to be uh, for, for biblical scholarship. And so he taught there uh, for, for those amount of years. Um, between 52 and 56. But uh, back then there were two basic, um, two basic books you're teaching from. You had the Bible, and then you had Peter Lumbar's uh, uh, basically commentary. And that was about it. Peter Lombard was, this, uh, was one of the few books Christians had to look at to say, these are the summaries and uh, beliefs we have about the Bible. They called them his, his sentences, uh, which were statements about Scripture. And that's, you know, there wasn't a lot. So you have to understand, by the time the Reformation comes along, when people are writing commentaries, this is a big deal. Uh, in fact, and I don't want to get off the topic of Thomas Aquinas, but this is, the, this is part of you know, our heritage of how we come to understand Scripture and things like that. Uh, there were people that were writing commentaries uh, that were just becoming uh, books upon books upon books upon books. They didn't know how to summarize things. It was actually Calvin's commentaries that were so uh, revolutionary in that they were summarizing things in a very concise way. Um, so this idea, I mean, we are kind of spoiled people. Uh, in my class at Bob Jones, one of my students asked me, you know, what are some commentaries I can look at to help me understand Scripture and things like that? And we have that. I mean, we have lots to choose from, right? If you're a Baptist, you have Baptist commentaries. If you're, if you're a Reformed Baptist, there's Reformed Baptist commentaries. If you're a dispensational Baptist, there's dispensational Baptist commentaries. If you're a dispensational uh, Calvinist, you have uh, MacArthur's commentaries. Uh, you have Calvin's commentaries. You have, you have just all these different things that we have at our fingertips. This was not the case uh, during the medieval times. Now, this is important because you have to understand, eventually, Thomas Aquinas becomes someone that writes a lot. And what he is writing is from his brain. 
because all he had was the Bible and the sentences from uh, Peter Lombard. That's it. So what comes out of his brain uh, is actually quite interesting because we're still arguing over what we think of Thomas Aquinas today. You have people like R.C. Sproul that says he's the greatest guy that ever lived. Then you, guy, you have guys at Westminster that say, well, I mean, he was okay here, but you know, he's also defending transubstantiation through, you know, uh, through Aristotle. And so it's a, he's a confusing guy because uh, at the same time that he is a true Catholic, he also said some things that we would agree with as Reformed people today. And this is not because he's trying to gain all this information from all the different commentaries that were available to him. This is, in fact, he was, you know, he knew uh, Peter Lombard's sentences, but um, they're very, very general works. Uh, and so what we're going to find is as he, as he starts writing, um, he becomes very useful. Okay, where were we? So from 1256 forward, uh, he becomes so important to the scholarly community that he starts, um, he's, he becomes a professor both at the University of Paris and the University of Naples, and uh, goes between them and teaches uh, at different times and becomes very important there. Uh, and, he, and then he starts writing all his works. And there are about 90 different works that he wrote. And each of those works are various volumes. So one work is the Summa Theologica, which is volumes upon volumes. Uh, the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is, just means uh, a summary against the Gentiles. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, is another set of volumes uh, and volumes. I mean, it's just, he wrote so much, it was unbelievable. Uh, and um, what's interesting, though, here's some interesting facts about him growing up. One interesting thing about him is that he was uh, really fat. I mean, <laughs> and he was like, never like, a thin guy and then like, you know, Henry VIII and, you know, was wounded or something and then got fat. He, he was fat, like, from the start. And, um, and he was made fun of a lot. Uh, because, of he, he was, because he was fat, he was really quiet. Because uh, uh, the kids were kind of mean to him uh, while he was growing up. So he was a shy, kind of unsocial, uh, he was unsocialized, he just kind of was one of those kids that uh, when you walked up to him and talked to him, he just didn't know how to carry a conversation very well. Uh, and because of that, uh, a lot of people thought he was dumb. So they thought, uh, you know, you got this heavy kid who um, doesn't know how to talk to people. And so they just assumed back then, I mean, you know, they don't have psychology, they don't have all the stuff, you know, we know of today that you know, that we could have looked deep into his soul or anything. Uh, they just thought, oh, he's quiet, must be dumb. And so, as he was growing up, uh, particularly when he went to college, uh, his, his fellow classmates called him the dumb ox. 
uh, oxes. Uh, I don't know if you've seen an ox. They're, they're quite big. Um, and they, so they, they called him the dumb ox. And uh, he had a, a professor, Albertus Mangus, who uh, was one of the biggest names back then, um, that uh, started talking to him and realized that his quietness wasn't because he was dumb, it was because he was tired of being teased. And so he, uh, he took a special interest in him. And uh, Mangus said this about him. Uh, at one point he balls out the entire group of students that are sitting around Thomas Aquinas and he says, you call him a dumb ox, I tell you, this dumb ox will bellow so loud, his bellowing will fill the world. And you had someone that all the kids respected say, no, you need to respect the student. And, uh, and that happened. Uh, everyone, I mean, no one in his class uh, is someone anyone knows anything about. Uh, we all know Thomas Aquinas. So, um, so anyway, he loved his books. Um, he loved to read. Uh, he was quoted as saying at one point, I have understood every page I've ever read. <laughs> Being unsociable meant also he didn't know how to, how to say things in a way uh, that would be better received. So he knew how to say things that he felt were true, so he, kinda he felt that he understood everything he read. He didn't understand that you don't say it like that, <laughs> otherwise people think you're a jerk. Um, and what's, uh, okay, so let me get to some of his works because that will feed into what makes uh, his death important. Okay. He used what was called, in his writing, he used what was called the scholastic method. Uh, the scholastic method is a, is a format in order to uh, take on challenges. So, um, so what he does is he starts with this question, okay? So is it true that God is in control of everything, okay? And then he deals with typical answers from people. And so then he'll, he'll give the typical answers. Typical answer, no, God can't be in control of everything because bad things happen and God's not bad. Or, yeah, uh, no, God is not in control of everything because uh, we have to have free will. And so he goes down through, um, through all the typical answers, and then he gives a response. And he'll say, well, I say that and then he'll go into what he believes, okay? Or for Thomas Aquinas, he would say, on the contrary, um, and then he would say what he believes. And then he would answer the typical answers, okay? And say, now some people have said that God can't be in control of everything because there's sin in the world. Well, this is how I would answer that. Or free will, and this is how I would answer that, okay? And that's kind of the... That's the program he would use when he was talking about each topic. And so his biggest work, the one that I think is the most important to us anyway, would be the uh, Summa Theologica 
it is the summary of theology, and it really is. It's a summary of, like, almost everything you could think of in theology. <laughs> I mean, he starts, he starts with, uh, you know, what, it, what man is like, what God is like, and he goes through all these different topics. Um, and uh, he demonstrates his ability to carefully explain his own theological insights using insight from Aristotle. Okay, so he uses Aristotle as a way to try and, and deal with these different topics. Um, and this is where it gets kind of, uh, how do I put it? Um, it's not, he's not, very, he's not a very uh, clear-cut person. There are people that say, well, Thomas Aquinas is just warmed over Aristotle, and, uh, and therefore we shouldn't listen to him. And when you read him, you find that he uses Aristotle to help us understand some things, but then he disagrees with Aristotle on a lot of things. And you see that he likes Aristotle's framework of how to think and how to look at the world and things like that, but not his actual philosophy. And so then you, you see that there's this... Uh, there's a contrast in that. So it's not so easy that he's just trying to use Aristotle to be Christian. Um, also, uh, a lot of the people, and this is, and, and you have to understand, I'm not like trying to defend his theology because a lot of it I don't agree with, but even people that I love, like Cornelius Van Til. I mean, I like Cornelius Van Til way more than I like Thomas Aquinas. But Van, even Van Til was responding to Aquinas by responding to people at his, in his time, in Van Til's time, that liked Thomas Aquinas. So then Van Til would say, well, Thomas Aquinas believes this, and this is bad, and this is bad. But really what he was pointing at were people that liked Aquinas during Van Til's time. Well, that doesn't mean that's actually Thomas Aquinas. Those people were called Thomists. And Thomists had their own idea of how they interpreted Thomas Aquinas. And to really get to Thomas Aquinas, you have to really get to what Thomas Aquinas said. And what's interesting is in some of Thomas Aquinas' views, we would agree with some of the stuff he says. Uh, he believed that sin uh, infected every part of who you are, body and soul. And for a soul, for, for Thomas Aquinas, meant your will, your mind, and your affections. Um, so you have to understand, you know, we're still fighting with Arminians about free will. Thomas Aquinas said your will, because of sin, is malicious against God. And your affections uh, are uh, filled with concupiscence. In other words, your affections just immediately want whatever will feed it, and you don't care, reason has no, no, in, has no interest in reason, you just want what, what will make you uh, fill with happiness, I guess. And the mind, what's interesting is that during the Reformation, the big battle was the will. So you had Luther, who was, you know, who had been influenced greatly by the medieval thinkers, saying that the will is in bondage, right? 
And this was against, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Erasmus's view that uh, the will is free. And so the big battle was over the will. And, uh, and it wasn't until the, 20, or until the 19th to the 20th century that people were asking, well, is the mind affected by sin? Maybe the mind is always trying to do what's, what's logical and what's right. It's just the will that pushes against us. And Thomas Aquinas even uh, had already answered that question with saying the mind is also infected by sin. Um, that it is, he calls it the, the wound of ignorance. Now we think of ignorance as a lack of knowledge. Thomas Aquinas was saying, it's not just that it's a lack, it's a resistance to knowledge. It's a, res a resistance to the truth. Your mind is constantly resisting truth, and that your will is malicious against God, and that your affections just want to be fed whatever it can to make it happy. So you have this total depravity idea coming across. Uh, of course, Aquinas didn't have those those categories yet because this was all from what he saw in scripture that makes sense it wasn't that he liked a commentary or kind of you know saw Calvin as interesting uh, none of that was around and so it was it's very interesting how through just you know Peter Lombard's sentences which were very general and the Bible he's developing these massive ideas and incredible detail on how to deal with them. Bob, did I see your hand? Um, it's, it's just you just struck a note here. I think everybody who's been in education from university level all the way down to Sunday school and we all try and believe that. These kids don't get really enthusiastic about it. We, they're, they're just something and it sounds like Aquinas has it. Everybody's going to resist it. And so I went <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, there's the. Um, I mean, I think what you're you're getting at, Bob, is that there is this. Uh, um, there's this two-headed beast when it comes to academics. On one side, academics can get so cold, and so distant from the heart, that it's almost useless. And by almost, I mean, it's useless. <laughs> but then there's this, there's this gratitude we have towards academics because in the academic world, you are looking for, um, I mean, any PhD uh, work is all about making distinctions. And when you make a distinction, you've really done something quite important, right? The distinction between uh, the mind and the will is important, right? It might sound academic and it might sound like, oh, this is all this highfalutin stuff, but it really becomes important when you're witnessing to someone and you're trying to reach them, how do I reach someone that doesn't know the Lord? Um, what do I depend upon? Maybe their mind is not affected by, by sin, so I can really appeal to logical arguments and show them evidence that demands a verdict. And I can show them 
uh, you know, all these, all these uh, guys, and I get at the Josh and, 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 his, and his little boy, Sean McDowell, out and say, hey, look at this. You know, your mind will, will then, I can lead you to God because your mind uh, just needs to be fixed. And once it's fixed, you'll see it and you'll go, oh yeah, I do need it. And you fall on your knees. Um, and there's really people that think that. I mean, and, and so why, why would we not think that? Well, the academics have, have done some help for us to really dig deep into this sort of stuff to say, you know, what does Scripture say about all this? And so there's some use there that this two-headed beast, that if we go too far on one head, we become so cold and callous that we're fascinated with ideas and we don't care about Christ anymore, but we love our ideas. But on the other side, we, got, we need good ideas if we love the Lord. Because it helps us know how we can serve Him and serve Him the right way. And this is our search for who God is. It does become sophisticated. Um, so, so as Thomas Aquinas is writing all these works, he gets, he gets to the third part of the Summa Theologica. And while he, while he is uh, uh, speaking Mass uh, as, a, as a priest, he was doing Mass, and as he was doing it, he got some kind of vision. This is what he says, that he got some kind of vision that he just, because of that vision, he really saw something about God that made him say, everything I have written is junk. Uh, that's my summary. Let me tell you what he actually said. Um, this is his quote. All I have written seems to me like so much straw compared to what I have seen and what has been revealed to me. And so he tells his secretary this and says, I'm not going to write another word. And he didn't. This was uh, 1273, um, and he just stops. And this is why the Summa Theologica just stops in book three and is, there's nothing more. He never finished it. He just thought everything I wrote was like straw to him. And now to, you have to understand what that means. It, it means, um, because of his mind always thinking in a, with biblical analogies, it, it could be burnt up. Um, so he saw that it, whatever he saw, whatever his experience was during, during that Mass, he believed that what he had written was just... He, he would tell you, just don't even read it. It's not worth it. Now, you know, you can do whatever you want with that, but um, in 1274, he was summoned by Pope Gregory X to take part in the Council of Lyon. And uh, this was because he wanted expertise. In those days, uh, there was a lot of councils. Councils were called in order to clarify and make a distinction. This is where you get the Council of Nicaea, where they're saying, making the distinction in who Jesus Christ is and his, the distinction between his, his, um, his human nature and his divine nature and how they cannot mix, but they can't be separated all these things is what keeps our orthodoxy together. And so he was called to do that. And on his way there, he died. 
It's unclear what he died of, uh, but he was only 50 years old. So uh, that is the life of, um, of Thomas Aquinas. He is a complex character because, you know, although there are some, uh, some of his theology, we would say, man, that is really helpful. Uh, he also was the guy they called on to say, help us tell the rest of the world about transubstantiation. So he takes Aristotle's view of substance versus accidents. Um, what you see, feel, taste, touch, that's what they would call an accident or a, a consequence of what is there. So if I take a piece of bread and it feels squishy, that's, it's, the squishiness isn't what it is. The squishiness is a consequence of what it is. Makes sense? Uh, when I eat it and it tastes good, the taste of it isn't what it is. The taste of it is a consequence of what it is. So what is it? And so uh, Aristotle says, well, there's this substance that it is. And then because of what it is, we have the taste of it. We have the feel of it. We can see it. We can, if we throw it against a wall, we can hear it. <laughs> Just trying to. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, you got to throw it hard. It's squishy. Uh, so, so when you separate, you know, substance from its consequences or accidents, you see this dichotomy going on. And so he uses that idea to say, okay, well, this is what happens in transubstantiation. The, the priest, you know, does his hocus pocus. Uh, remember what I told you that meant? Hoc est corpus meum. This is the Okay, so... Uh, he does his hocus-pocus stuff, and then the accidents remain. It still looks like bread, tastes like bread, throw it against the wall, it makes a thump. It's all the same, but it's the substance that changes into Jesus, okay, whatever that is. You don't get to see or taste that, but it's there at its core. You just got to trust the priest that he did his thing right. And so, um, and so that to this day is how they still defend transubstantiation because of Thomas Aquinas. But you also have to understand that in those days, there wasn't a reformation. That was all there was. The church says, hey, this is how it is. Aquinas says, right, so how can I defend the church? Right, he was a very loyal guy and there wasn't anyone saying, hey, this isn't in the Bible. And maybe he could have found it, but, uh, you know, that it wasn't in the Bible. But, as Luther says, uh, Luther's problem wasn't that there was transubstantiation going on. His problem that the, is that they said they, it stopped being bread. And he said, no, it's got to be bread and Christ's body. Together, consubstantiate. So together you have Christ's body and the bread at the same time. That was Luther's big thing. So you have to understand, even in the Reformation uh, with Luther, it wasn't until you got to the guys after Luther that people were saying, no, Christ's body isn't physically there, it's spiritually there, and you had more. Uh. So I mean, a lot of times, you know, we make fun of uh, the liberals who hold people to the same standard we have today as to what racism is and stuff like that. So we look back into, you know, early, early, early 
uh, film and we see people with black face on and we go racist. And yeah, maybe it is, but I mean, they, there was a different standard that we hold today than they held back then. And so then they find everything racist all the way up until like two months ago. That's not, you know, then we have the knowledge of what's racist and what's not. And then they hold everyone responsible for that. And we go, well, that's ridiculous. But all at the same time, we can't then say, well, we have experienced the Reformation and then a few hundred years after that enjoyed uh, Reformation reflection and then hold Thomas Aquinas to that same standard. Uh, it doesn't change that he was wrong on a lot of things, but it's amazing uh, about the things that he was right about just by looking at the Bible and a few sentences from Peter Lombard. Um, I don't know if I would have the mind to be able to do that. And so there's things to, you know, so R.C. Sproul's right. This guy had, was an amazing guy to look at. Uh, I don't think that we can look at him and say we should take Summa Theologica and this is a reformed work. Uh, I think that would be a mistake as well. But uh, like everything, uh, things are a little more complicated than they, than they appear. And that's a good thing to think about. One thing that I think could challenge us as we reflect on these men is, uh, especially with Thomas Aquinas, you had a guy uh, that was an academic, but he was also very serious about Christ himself. Um, it's something to think about in our, in our study of God's word. There's two traps we can fall into. We can fall into the trap of, you know, we look at a lot of useless academics and we might say, oh, well, just give me my Bible and, and me and I'll figure this out. Um, that would be a mistake. Uh, but at the same time, there's things as we, if we have a hunger for Christ, we really love Christ even more than our ideas, then we will search that out and we will be searching for it even as it gets complex. And we don't have to remain simple about Christ. Um, it's okay if that's where we are today. But if you love Christ, you're going to keep searching and studying and trying to understand who he is as he is revealed in Scripture and what that means. And we can become quite sophisticated, not because we love ideas, but because we love our Christ. And as I look at Aquinas' life, I see a guy that did become quite sophisticated, uh, but I don't know if he ever became useless. I think he was a guy, uh, one of the few academics out there, that really pursued knowledge because they were pursuing Christ. And so let that be our little uh, mantra for this Sunday school, that pursuing Christ does not have to be just, um, doesn't have to remain simple. Uh, we can become sophisticated if we love Christ and keep pursuing him. Uh, there's a lot to know. Even his natures is difficult and hard to pursue as well. So let that be our challenge. Did I see Gregory's hand? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, you won't hear too many 
Too many scholars today, is what Greg is saying, uh, say, oh, all my works are useless, uh, don't read them. Uh, that would uh, hurt book sales, for sure. <laughs> no one wants that. But you're right. Yeah, it takes a certain amount of humility to... Or some, you know, I mean, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know, you know, I'm not going to make any claims about what was going on, but he did seem to be moved by God. And so I don't know what that looked like. But uh, it's interesting. Go find out for yourself. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. We've got to get moving. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are thankful to you, Lord, um, that you are a God who reveals himself. And Lord, you reveal yourself in a way that we are able to pursue it and make it a lifetime pursuit, Lord, that we will never exhaust your revelation. We will never exhaust the depth and the breadth of who you are. And Lord, let us pursue that and, and be interested and in love with you that we might keep on pursuing and pursuing the knowledge and depth of who you are, Lord. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.